This is episode number 229, Metabolic Health, Why You Should Care About It with Casey Means, MD. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show and to 2021. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. We've got this biologic blueprint. The difference between health and disease is how it's expressed, and that's up for grabs. What I mean by up for grabs is that we can impact that by how we choose to live, and one of the biggest factors there is what we put in our mouths. Food is both the biologic substrate that builds our body, but it's also the signaling molecule that tells our body what to do. It's so powerful. And we are into it, friends, the very first week of a brand new year. And it feels good. Fresh starts always have a lot of optimism associated with them, people feeling like they can make changes in their lives and a clean slate. For many people, the new year is a time to look at some of their habits. And usually changing your diet or eating a healthier diet is something at the top of most New Year's resolutions lists. And today's podcast episode might be really interesting to you if you are looking to optimize your health. Metabolic health might be something you've never considered. It was something I have never thought about or considered until recently. Metabolic health is way more than just about the number on the scale or your BMI. It's considering things like having ideal levels of blood sugar, triglycerides, HDL, cholesterol, blood pressure, waist circumference, and more without the use of medications. These factors directly relate to a person's risk for heart disease, diabetes, and stroke. And maybe you aren't worried about that now, but these types of things tend to show up later in life as a lagging indicator of your health as you get older. Your metabolic health also affects things like sleep and energy levels, recovery, appetite, and more. And if you're an athlete, you're probably really thinking about things like sleep and your energy levels and recovering. A study published from UNC Chapel Hill noted that only one in eight people had the optimal level of metabolic health, only 12%. Now, I've mentioned that I love the company Inside Tracker on this podcast because you can order a very comprehensive blood test that teaches you all about your metabolic health and so much more to optimize your health. You can look at things like all of your vitamins and minerals, and you look at things like triglycerides and cholesterol and blood sugar and so much more. So if you're interested in Starting to look at your metabolic health, check out Inside Tracker. They have been a previous podcast sponsor and they are just a great friend and I love their company. In today's podcast, I got to sit down with Stanford MD Casey Means. She is also the co founder and chief medical officer of pioneering digital health startup Levels. Levels Health is where you can find that on the internet. Dr. Casey is focused on using continuous glucose monitoring to solve the epidemic affecting the health and well-being of 88% of the U.S. adult population. She also promotes plant-based nutrition for optimal health. She's been featured in all of the mainstream amazing magazines like Forbes, Entrepreneur, Business Insider, Healthy Human Revolution, Well Plus Good, and so much more. She's also an award-winning biomedical researcher with past research positions at the National Institute's Stanford School of Medicine and NYU. Her clinical work focuses on functional and lifestyle medicine with an emphasis on whole foods, plant-based nutrition, mind-body connection, and physical activity as foundations of metabolic and overall health. So whether or not you eat plant-based 
all of these different things surrounding optimal health are probably of interest to you and especially kicking off the new year. An app that some of my friends have recently released is called 8020 Plants, and it offers one-on-one coaching for changing your diet to a plant-based diet. There are daily lessons with videos, meal planning help, and hundreds of recipes and a supportive community. So if you're looking to find an app that is going to give you a lot of guidance, check it out. There is a link in the show notes. Check out 8020 Plants, and it will send you directly to where you need to go. In today's podcast, we talked about defining metabolic fitness and why you should care about your metabolic health, how Dr. Casey started integrating lifestyle medicine and nutrigenomics, COVID morbidities and glucose, how athletes can have glucose issues, how to optimize a whole foods plant-based diet, and how lack of sleep affects glucose negatively. And that was really interesting for me to learn about as well. I wanted to take a moment to give you a huge thank you to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon and PayPal with your donations. Those donations do not go unnoticed, and they go to pay my audio engineer, Roma, who has been with me since episode one, and now we're on episode 229. So we have both invested a lot into this podcast, and we thank you so, so much for those of you who have done so as well. And you can find that at the show notes at sonyalooney.com slash podcasts. And you can also find that at patreon.com slash the Sonia show. If you're enjoying my content, I have an exclusive newsletter that comes out every single Sunday with my thought of the week, a question for you to ponder and the podcast of the week. I also have some really big announcements that are going to be launched in that newsletter, and I cannot wait to share it with you. You can get that at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. And last, I just wanted to thank you guys. A lot of you have supported me and my company, Moxie and Grit, moxieandgrit.com. I have worked for years to create the funniest and somewhat crazy sock designs and apparel designs. And so many of you have been ordering those over the holidays, so much so that we're out of stock on many, many items. And those are going to be replenished shortly. I actually put in an order before the holidays. And I just want to say thanks, you guys. It puts a big smile on my face whenever I can see you rocking these designs and knowing that they're making your day or your ride or maybe your life just a little bit better. Don't forget to rate and hit the subscribe button. What all podcasters say, it really does help others find the show. And if you are finding value in it, make sure you share the show with your friends. We super, super appreciate that. And we try so hard to bring you the best content to help you be better every day and to help your friends be better every day too. And with that, let's get into today's episode with Dr. Casey Means. Welcome to the show, Dr. Casey. Thank you so much for having me, Sonia. It was so funny. We were chatting right before I hit record and we just started going. I was like, ah, I got to stop and hit, start and hit record because all this stuff we're talking about is so awesome. I know. It's always fun to kind of jump right in uh, when there's so many common interests. Yeah. So we were just talking about glucose monitoring and metabolic. And you, you use the term metabolic fitness instead of metabolic health. So I think a good place to start is what is metabolic fitness? Yeah. So when we're talking about metabolism, we are talking fundamentally about the core pathways in the body that let us create energy in our bodies from the food that we eat. So 
we take in food multiple times a day and we as a human organism have to convert those substrates, those carbohydrates, those fats into something that our body can actually use, a currency that our cells register. And that's usually things like ATP. And this happens in our cells in the powerhouse of the cell called the mitochondria. It's this conversion process. And that's what metabolism is. Every single cell in the body needs energy to function. And when we don't produce energy effectively from the food that we eat, we see dysfunction and we see breakdown. Cells that aren't getting really high quality energy production, they're not going to function properly. And when this happens in a specific place in the body, we start to see symptoms. You can imagine if you're not producing energy well in the brain, you could see things like brain fog or lack of energy or pain or mood issues like anxiety or depression. And that's exactly what we see in metabolic dysfunction. We see increased rates of all of those things, dementia, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, depression, anxiety. You know, if this is happening in another part of the body, like the heart or the cardiovascular system, it could look like high blood pressure or heart disease or small vessel diseases like retinopathy or erectile dysfunction. If poor energy production is happening in the ovary, it could look like polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a metabolic disease that is the number one cause of infertility in our, and menstrual irregularity in our country. So really, we're talking about metabolism. We're talking about a core fundamental pathway of how we make energy for the cells in our body. And what metabolic fitness is, is when those processes are working really efficiently and really, really well. It's when we are producing energy efficiently from the food we're eating without undue damaging byproducts through those processes. And we are reaping the benefits of having really robust, strong, efficient energy production in our body. And what that looks like is improved exercise performance, good energy, stable mood, good sleep, high cognitive function. We really see just sort of this high performance and stability in our lives when our metabolic function is efficient and stable. And you know, to get that metabolic fitness, it actually really comes down to the choices we're making every day. Every single day, we kind of, by how we eat, how much sleep we're getting, how much exercise we're doing, how we're managing stress, how many times per day we're eating, we are basically sending signals to the body of how our metabolism should work. And a lot of the choices we're making in our sort of Western diets in our modern day and age actually really impair our metabolic function, our metabolic fitness. And we see lots of symptoms and diseases emerge, emerge from this, you know, most notably things like obesity and diabetes, but lots of other symptoms that we may not typically relate to metabolism, like mood issues, infertility, brain fog, poor energy, things like that. So it's really getting on top of our glucose and our, our metabolic health is really a key to unlocking a lot of these benefits. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about health and diet and how everything affects everything holistically in your body. And a lot of times we talk about gut health and metabolism is such a massive part of gut health. I mean, it basically is how it all works. It's the underlying functionality of everything. But the interesting thing about metabolic syndrome or dysfunction is that maybe people don't realize it's sneaking up on them. Like you mentioned brain fog. And I know that a lot of us don't even realize we have it until it lifts. So how can somebody even know that metabolic dysfunction is starting to manifest? Yeah, it's a really, really great question. I think the first thing is really understanding the many different faces of metabolic dysfunction. It can really, really show up anywhere. And in our sort of conventional healthcare system, we often take symptoms that are occurring in different parts of the bodies, and we like to think of them as totally separate entities, like isolated silos. If it's happening in the brain, it's a brain thing. If it's happening in the heart, it's a heart thing. 
you know, if it's happening in the eye, it's an eye thing, but we're a unified system, just like you said. And so I think the first step is really awareness of what these different things might be. So, you know, and it, it really runs the full gamut. We could run head to toe and actually really talk about each different system and how it's related to metabolic health. And so there's really no part of the body that can escape it because we're dealing with these core pathways here. I think some of the most practical things that the average person who's non-diabetic might see is, so belly fat is one of them. So midline abdominal fat, that's kind of hard to lose. This often is a sign of metabolic dysfunction. When we are producing, you know, energy poorly in the body, when we are exposing ourselves to so much glucose and sugar in our, in our diet, that we are constantly going on this up and down swing of glucose. What that does is it stimulates a hormone called insulin and insulin is a metabolic hormone that lets our body take up sugar into the cells so that we can use it. But when it's stimulated too much over and over and over and over again, the cells can become numb to insulin. And then, but then the body actually has to produce more insulin to get the same amount of glucose into the cells to be used for energy. What happens when your insulin is high is that it actually tells your body to store fat around the midline, around your organs, and that's called visceral fat, as opposed to the fat under our skin, which is called subcutaneous fat. So midline, hard to budge fat around the middle can be a sign of underlying high insulin levels, which is a sign of metabolic dysfunction. If we are overweight, you know, a BMI above 25, this can be a sign of that we're starting to have trouble with our metabolic system. 72% of the country right now has a BMI over 25, overweight or obese. And what that means is that, you know, we're generally, it means we're storing too much fat and we're not using that fat. We have an excess. And a lot of that, again, is related to this hormone insulin. When insulin is high, what it actually tells the body is to store fat and to not burn it. It's a sign to the body that there's tons of glucose, sugar around. We don't need to use fat for energy. These are two of our key sources. And when you have too much of one, you're not going to use the other. Since our diet is so high in refined carbohydrates and sugar, we end up spiking that insulin, blocking the fat oxidation. So if you have excess weight, in the form of fat, it's often a sign that you're not burning through it. You may need to get your insulin down and that's done by improving, you know, how much sugar we're eating, how frequently we're eating it. We want to get those insulin levels down. So a simple test that people can do is actually what's called a waist to hip ratio. So you measure the thinnest part of your waist and then you're lower down on your hips. And when that ratio is elevated, when the waist compares the hips is actually too high of a number, that's a sign that you may have this, this midline fat that's associated with insulin resistance. So that's sort of just like some very, very basic things. You know, you can also, of course, go to the doctor and get lab tests done. So the tests that you're typically going to see done for assessing metabolic health in a standard fashion is a fasting blood sugar test that a doctor might do yearly for you. The current recommendations are to do this starting at age 40 or what's called a hemoglobin A1C test, which is a 90-day average of your blood sugar levels. You also might get a cholesterol test, and when certain parts of the cholesterol panel are high, particularly the triglycerides, that can be a sign that you have excess blood sugar that's being converted to fat. So there's different blood tests that you can look at. The issue is that, like you said, this can really creep up on you, and sometimes our lab work can actually look okay when in fact there are things under the surface that are actually moving us down that spectrum of metabolic dysfunction. So something that's worth noting is that, you know, like I mentioned, we can become insulin resistant over time and our body has to produce more insulin to get the same amount of glucose into the cells. And because we're quite resilient, our body can do that for a long time without our glucose numbers actually 
changing that much. And there's research evidence that suggests that our insulin levels change and our insulin sensitivity changes 13 years before glucose levels actually change in the blood. So we, there's many physicians really more in the longevity health movement who are really focusing on, we should probably be testing for insulin levels to screen for people who are starting to be on this spectrum of metabolic dysfunction. And that's something that I certainly do in, in all of my patients is order a fasting insulin test and see where that is. And the second thing is you can use other more novel tools like a home finger prick test or a continuous glucose monitor, which is a little device like a, a sensor that you wear on your body and actually measures your glucose every 15 minutes. And what you can start to see is how high your blood glucose is actually spiking after a meal. And when those spikes after a meal are very, very high, it can tell you that you're probably moving down you know, a path that you don't want to go down. When we spike our glucose frequently throughout the day by eating meals that tend to raise our blood sugar, we know that we're kind of spiking our insulin and moving down that pathway of insulin resistance. So fasting insulin tests, continuous glucose monitoring, those are some of these more novel things that people are starting to talk about to get a better sense of what's actually happening under the surface above and beyond what we can maybe see at the doctor's office. Yeah, knowing your biometrics in real time is something that can be really powerful because whenever you get a blood, I mean, a fasted blood test is a fasted blood test, but what's happening in real time is actually way more useful information than a snapshot of time. Definitely. Like I, I think of a fasting glucose test that you might do at home with a finger prick or at the doctor through a blood test as a photograph of your body. Whereas real time monitoring is a movie and you can get so much more from the movie, the nuances of what's happening. And so it's, it's very exciting that we're moving that direction in health. We're seeing wearables all over the place crop up. You know, we've got our Fitbits, we've got our aura rings, we've got our whoop straps, we've got beds that measure our sleep now, like the eight sleep bed, we've got heart rate variability monitors, you know, that measure our stress objectively. So for fitness, sleep, stress, you know, three pillars of health, we're seeing wearable data that the research shows actually does move people in the right direction. If you wear a step counter, people take more steps. So that's fantastic you know, you, it's hard to improve what you can't measure. And what we've really struggled with, I think, is that we've never had a way to measure nutrition in real time. There's no way to get instantaneous feedback on how food is affecting your body. And so something I really love about continuous glucose monitors as a tool is that for the first time ever, we have this wearable that's giving us that biofeedback and closing that loop on how an individual food decision is affecting our health in real time. And when we have that closed loop one-to-one -one relationship, we can start to make, you know, precise targeted adjustments that move us in the right direction. So I think it's a really exciting time for biowearables and for, for that, you know, feedback about nutrition. And you're a Stanford trained physician. And you said to me that you eat a plant-based diet with the food as medicine lens. And that's the way that I eat as well. In medical school these days, like, because I, I think, did you graduate in 2014? I did. Yeah. How much of your training now had nutrition in it? Because I know that in the past, a lot of physician training had no nutrition. Is Has that changed? You know, it's changing bit by bit. So it's still a fraction of the medical school curriculum, unfortunately. But there's very exciting programs cropping up around medical schools. Harvard for instance, has actually started a culinary medicine program within their medical school that is teaching physicians how to cook healthy meals. I mean, this is hmm. this is huge. I mean, teaching kitchens. Um, 
In fact, actually, I'm um, on the planning committee for my high school, uh, so not even med school or college. And they're actually starting to build a scientific teaching kitchen in the school to teach about genetics and how food impacts genetics and things like so that. Like, there's movement happening, but the research suggests that the average medical student is getting about less than 10 hours of nutrition training in their entire medical school. And that's, that is actually mind boggling to me because the majority of the conditions we're seeing in the hospitals these days and the things that are plaguing our country and our economy and our human capital are chronic illnesses. These are not acute infections or traumas. These are illnesses that develop over years and are very much rooted in diet and lifestyle. So really the highest value intervention that we can do for patients is help teach them how to eat healthy from an early age, ward off a huge percentage of these diseases. Right now, we have 128 million Americans in the U.S. with prediabetes or diabetes. That's about a third of the country with overt blood sugar dysfunction. 83% of diabetes is thought to be completely avoidable if we actually just reduced our modifiable risk factors, which include diet, smoking, and movement. So these are we're $3.4 trillion healthcare costs per year. Diabetes is a huge contributor to that, and 83% of it is preventable. So it would seem logical that as trainees of medicine, we would become absolute experts on nutritional science to help counsel our, our patients. But, you know, I think it's there's hope. We are moving in that direction in some capacity. I think one, because economically our healthcare system is moving towards more of a value-based care system, meaning that instead of just paying for procedures, we're actually going to be paying more for outcomes over cost. So the value equation is outcome over cost. You want good outcomes over lowest cost. That's a high value intervention. And when you look at all the interventions out there, actually preventative nutrition counseling is extremely high value. It's fairly low cost and it has excellent long-term outcomes. So I think we're going to see a lot there, but you know, that's a systems level thing. That's really top down how doctors can enact this. But I'm really personally passionate about how do we empower people to make better decisions? Because as a physician, no matter what I say in a 15-minute doctor visit, I'm not going to be with the patient 24 hours a day when they're making the 100 micro decisions about diet, stress, sleep, and food that are ultimately going to generate health in their body. So for me, I think we need to do more to really empower individuals with knowledge. And that's where that's where I really get passionate about biowearables and, and how people can actually have the data themselves and make decisions based on that. I don't want it to be that someone has to wait a year to walk into a doctor's office and get a surprise about their metabolic health and they get counseled about it. Like what if we could actually give that information in real time to people to make decisions day in and day out. So I think from both sides, patient up and sort of doctor driven, we're going to, we're going to see movement and that's what really excites me. But yeah, bottom line, we need way more nutrition training in, in medical schools. And, um, it's something I'm passionate about. I actually just guest lectured at Stanford last week and was brought in to teach in a class on longevity. And my whole lecture was about glucose, food as medicine and longevity. And so they're, you know, really wonderful to see that like my alma mater is interested in bringing more of this in. Yeah, you're doing an incredible amount of work in this area. And you're also the associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. So if you didn't learn about longevity and food as medicine in school, where did you learn about that? And how did you decide to integrate it into your practice and your research? Yeah, I mean, food has always been a passion of mine. I've been a, a lover of food always, and it really stemmed from my undergraduate training. So I studied personalized genetics as an undergrad, and that's what my research and you know honors thesis and all of this stuff was in. And specifically, I focused on this concept of what's called nutrigenomics. So nutrigenomics is how 
individual food compounds affect gene expression. I had worked at 23andMe in college when it was very, very early and was just fascinated with, okay, we've got this biochemical, we've got this biologic blueprint, but the difference between health and disease is how it's expressed. And that is, that's up for grabs. And what I mean by up for grabs is that we can impact that by how we choose to live. And one of the biggest factors there is what we put in our mouths. Food is both the biologic substrate that builds our body, but it's also the signaling molecule that tells our body what to do. It's so powerful. So nutrigenomics was just fascinating to me. And an example of that would be like turmeric, for instance, a root that's been used for millennia as medicine in other cultures. And unfortunately, it's kind of fallen to the wayside in Western culture. But we now know from more modern research that it has a compound in it called curcumin, which is a compound which actually is digested, goes into the cells, changes the expression of the gene NF-kappa B, which is the master inflammatory gene in our body. So when NF-kappa B is activated, it, it just activates a number of different inflammatory cytokines in the body and curcumin can downregulate the expression of this. So that's like so cool. This is like you're eating something and you're changing your own gene expression. And we know how much inflammation is rooted with so many different conditions. And so it's magic, you know, so that became really fascinating to me. Flash forward, I finished medical school. I, I trained as a surgeon. I had a neck surgeon, which is a surgeon of conditions of the ear, nose, and throat. And in that field, most of the conditions I was seeing were conditions that were inflammatory in nature. So sinusitis, thyroiditis, laryngitis, all these itises, that suffix means inflammation. And I was just like slinging steroids left and right nasal steroids, topical steroids, IV steroids, inhaled steroids, steroids or immune suppressants. And I was, you know, slinging a lot of antibiotics. And when those things don't work, we do surgery, which is like highly morbid. And I sort of stepped back and said, these are conditions that are rooted in chronic inflammation. That means the immune system is too revved up. Why is the immune system so revved up? And why aren't we talking about that? Why are we just tamping it down with medicine and then going on to surgery, which actually is a little bit strange to think about because you can't operate on the immune system. You can certainly change, you know, you can suck pus out of a sinus, but you're not actually changing the core physiology that's making someone chronically inflamed. So really stepped back and went back to those, you know, roots of nutrigenomics and what drives inflammation, thinking about all the different modifiable risk factors that drive inflammation, like exposure to toxins in our food, water, air, and personal care products, the foods that we're eating, you know, these refined seed oils, the high sugar foods, the low fiber diets, how our microbiome dysbiosis impacts inflammation, how sedentary behavior and lack of sleep and too much stress impacts inflammation. These are all well-established pathways, but we weren't talking about it. And I just knew I had to step back and kind of merge my history of, of sort of this genetic side of things and the observations I was seeing in surgery and create some sort of new vision for how we were going to help patients really approach that at scale. So I got additional training through the Institute for Functional Medicine. I was reading books upon books upon books from a lot of the longevity medicine leaders, people like you know, Mark Hyman, Joel Furman, Michael Greger, Sarah Gottfried, Jason Fung, Cyrus Kimbata, you know, a lot of these authors who were really thinking deeply about root cause approaches to health and started my own practice, really focusing on helping people heal from within, 
focused on the modifiable aspects of health and disease, on the root cause nature of disease, and then decided to really start consulting and working with entrepreneurs to help scale some of these efforts. How do we take technology and digital health to make this bigger? You know, in a given week, I can maybe see 20 patients and help them with their diet and lifestyle and this very personalized approach. But how can we actually do this for millions of people? And so that's why I got started with you know, engaging with the digital health community, and then also wanting to amplify this message through the journal, the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention, which really focuses on plant-based food as medicine in a very evidence-based way to just really do as much as we can to get this out there. Yeah, like lifestyle or genetics load the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. (sighs) And, you know, I love that phrase. That's why I changed my diet about, gosh, seven or eight years ago, I changed to plant-based because I really wanted to be healthier. And then as an athlete, I found out that, wow, this is actually a benefit as an athlete because inflammation is a problem. Inflammation contributes to not being able to recover. It it contributes to overtraining. And also it contributes to a lot of other lifestyle factors, such as autoimmune diseases and lots of other issues that you've mentioned. So yeah, I think it's amazing that there's more and more people in the medical community who are promoting eating a whole foods plant-based diet or even trending in that direction because many people look at their doctor and they go to their doctor as the number one expert in preventing disease. But that's not necessarily the role of the doctor in the medical world right now. It's it's treating the symptoms of the disease. So I think the more and more doctors that are trained in lifestyle medicine are out there, then that's going to be a really positive thing for people who are going to their doctor, hoping that they can get all the answers from their doctor. Absolutely. I mean, I agree completely. And nothing could be more important right now. I mean, we're in the midst of, as we're recording this, an uptick in COVID cases. And, you know, metabolic dysfunction and underlying preventable comorbidities like heart disease, diabetes, and obesity have been shown to be the key risk factors that increase morbidity and mortality from COVID. And, you know, while it's important that we have had public health measures that focus on masks, sanitation, social distancing, and a vaccine, these are all reactionary measures that have nothing to do with our internal resilience. The reality is we have massive impact over on our immune function by how we live, the choices we're making every day. And as of yet, we have not seen a large-scale public health effort addressing that internal biologic resilience. And the research is very clear that these largely preventable metabolic conditions are key drivers in worse outcomes. And so, you know, it's it could not be more important now, especially since we're not really seeing a huge movement on the on the large public health scale that I think more people just start talking about this, you know, podcasts, doctors, et cetera, focusing on how do we do everything in our power, be it food, food timing, stress management, quality sleep, good exercise, avoidance of toxins to improve our underlying biologic function, our metabolic function, and give us the best shot of basically being hard to kill from this virus. Yeah. And I'll put a link in the show notes to your research. Like you, you, you published a paper in this, right? Yeah, yeah I, I did. Back in April, I published a paper in the journal Metabolism because I was poring over the data about risk factors for worse COVID outcomes. And even back in April, very beginning when I published this paper, there were over 100 papers showing that increased blood sugar worsened outcomes from COVID. And there's been really fabulous research out there from Verda Health 
is a group that's run by Sarah Hallberg that's really leading the effort on showing that diabetes and high blood sugar, metabolic dysfunction, these are reversible conditions. We've often thought of something like diabetes as a one-way street, like you get it and then you have it, but it's actually not true. We can move back towards normal blood sugar on that spectrum. And their particular intervention focuses on a low-carb ketogenic diet and nutritional counseling, but they were able to get people from a diabetic state to a non-diabetic glucose level in 10 weeks of this dietary intervention program. So you can imagine it's been much longer than 10 weeks of COVID. You know, we have the potential to make huge shifts in the in the overall metabolic health of our country if we really focus our energy on that. And so that's where I, I think really what I'd love to see is a movement towards us taking control of that and giving people the tools and the access to food and the access to data and information that lets it be possible and achievable. Yeah, just a few resources for people in the diabetic realm, like reversing type 2 diabetes is possible with a whole foods plant-based diet as well. And I had Cyrus Kambata and Robbie on the podcast, and we recorded about mastering diabetes. And Brenda Davis has done a ton of work, her cookbook, The Kick Diabetes Cookbook. And she's been on the podcast multiple times. So if anyone's listening and they're like, gosh, you know, I just got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or I'm pre-diabetic, these resources are going to be really helpful for you. But for us, I'd like to start driving our conversation towards talking about glucose and athletes, because a lot of athletes think that they're immune to having issues with their glucose or their insulin. And your research and your continuous glucose monitoring has shown a little bit different. So how can even the fittest people have issues with their glucose? Yeah, actually, it's a great question. And, and the origin story of our company actually has to do a lot with this exact question. My co-founder and the president of the company, Josh Clemente, he is a brilliant aerospace engineer. He was a, a life support engineer at SpaceX. And he was also a CrossFit instructor. So super jacked guy, really, really fit. And he was really intrigued by glucose monitoring, had noticed that in the astronauts and these top tier people who we have to have maximal performance, like metabolic health was a huge, huge focus. And he became interested in like, I wonder how my metabolic health is. So he actually bought a finger prick monitor and started pricking his finger and noticed that his fasting blood sugar was quite high. And so then he wanted to get a continuous glucose monitor because he was actually pricking his finger like 50 times a day to try and see what was happening after meals. And he's like, oh my gosh, there must be a better way. Heard about these painless continuous glucose monitors, but couldn't get access to one. No doctor would prescribe it for him because they're like, wait, you're in your 20s and you're super fit. There's no way I'm prescribing you a device that's intended for diabetic management. He said, no, 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 my, my finger pricks are showing high glucose. I really need to do this. He ended up basically having to get one on his own through a friend who was like a medical resident and prescribed him one and he put it on and he found out that he was basically in the pre-diabetic range after many, many of his meals, especially his meals around workouts. So here he is very fit, had a lot of muscle, but you know, he was pounding Gatorade, which is filled with, you know, high fructose corn syrup and all this, you know, refined sugar crap. He was eating a lot of bars, you know, like protein bars and things like that, that have tons and tons of sugar. He was eating the shakes. He was eating the gels. All these things have this huge amounts of refined sugar and was basically seeing that his glucose would spike through the roof, like before a workout from these foods that he was eating for quote unquote energy. But then what happens is you get that huge insulin surge and you actually, your body will soak up all that glucose and crash. And in that crash, when you have a big spike and a big dip, that's called reactive hypoglycemia. And that's associated with fatigue. 
irritability, anxiety. So people are putting themselves on these roller coasters before and during their workouts. And, you know, sometimes for the recovery drinks and things like that afterwards, they'll, they'll see this big spike. And research has shown that actually eating a lot of carbohydrates right after a workout can diminish some of the metabolic benefits that you get from doing the workout itself. So it was really interesting for him to start to understand how the fuel he was choosing was actually maybe thwarting his efforts. And by actually focusing on much gentler carbohydrates around workouts, you know, enough to give some glucose to actually replete the glycogen stores in the muscles and the liver, but not so much that you're getting this collateral damage of like an insulin roller coaster and dip. He was able to totally both up-level his endurance and his workouts, but also get himself into a much better metabolic health state. So just started experimenting with all the food he was eating. You know, he was eating oatmeal for breakfast. It was shooting him through the roof. Now he eats, you know, a much more like protein and fat-based meal for breakfast. And his energy is much more sustained. His fasting glucose has come down. He's back to totally normal, you know, optimal metabolic health. And so it's been fascinating. And we've seen a lot of similar experience is with many of the professional and recreational athletes in our program and a number of them who are actually specifically trying to focus on a low carb diet for performance so that they can not have to rely so much on sugar and glucose during their workouts and actually tap into more of the fat burning during their workouts. So that's kind of a whole nother topic, but I think there's a lot of opportunity for athletes to understand how their fuel is affecting them. Yeah, it's funny. I'm I'm sponsored by Goo Energy Labs and we did a discussion where there was four athletes and some of us are about eating like high quality carbohydrates, not the like we'll have the gels and, and the and the sports drinks while we're exercising, but off the bike we're eating, you know, lots of the whole grains. But there was one guy who was an ultra runner and he was a low carb guy, but he wasn't so I wanna ask you about like plant based, how plant based fits into all this because People are like, yeah, like I am low carb, but I don't eat plant-based. I can't eat plant-based or eating all these foods. How does low carb work with plant-based? And do you need to be eating plant-based to have good glucose levels while you're doing this? Yeah. So I think there's absolutely a way to do optimal metabolic health with plant-based, but it means being really smart about your plant-based diet. Plant-based can mean many, many different things, you know, vegan slash plant-based. It could be vegan can mean French fries, potato chips, protein bars, Gatorade, you know, a huge bowl of white rice. That that's all plant-based. But plant-based can also be 13 servings of colorful green leafy vegetables and and other vegetables per day. It can mean, you know, beans and legumes and nuts and seeds and antioxidant spices and all of these things. So I guess right off the bat, I'd say that sort of processed vegan plant-based, like that's, that's not going to be good for your metabolic health. That's refined processed carbohydrates that are going to turn to glucose rapidly in your bloodstream and and cause this glucose roller coaster or cause this insulin roller coaster. That's going to basically, you know, have you all over the place during the day and also block you from burning fat because your insulin's high. So you don't want that. Then within the, actually the, the whole foods plant-based realm, which is where I am, I think there's really even room for optimization there. So what I found, you know, 18 months ago when I started wearing a continuous glucose monitor, I was eating a lot more like oatmeal and quinoa and farro and brown rice and things like this. And what I actually found on my glucose monitor that I was just going way up, like 
pre-diabetic glucose levels up to, you know, 160, 180, 200 sometimes after these meals. And so I was really, and I I'd noticed that like a couple hours after I'd be really, really tired and that would correspond with these dips. So the first thing I did was, you know, really go back to the research and understand like, how do you create a better balanced meal? You really don't want to eat naked carbohydrates. I like to say like where you're just eating a straight carb by adding fat, protein, and fiber, you can greatly diminish the way that those carbohydrates are absorbed into the body and have a much gentler spike. Also, food sequencing makes a big difference. So if you eat your high-carb foods later in the meal, you can see a much lower glucose response. So if you actually fill the, the tummy in with greens and protein and fat first and then put in your carbs, you're going to see less of a glucose response typically. And food timing matters. So if you eat your, your higher-carbohydrate plant-based foods earlier in the day, you tend to see a lower response than if you eat them late at night because we're actually more insulin resistant naturally at night. So food pairing combinations, food timing, food sequencing all make a difference. I also just learned about some really great swaps for some of those foods that I like just as much, but that have like a much gentler glucose rise. So for instance, instead of rice, I'm doing a lot more cauliflower and broccoli rice. I, at this point, I can barely tell the difference. I make my sushi out of cauliflower rice and I still get a little glucose elevation but not enough that it's going to be this like crazy surge. It's enough for energy, but not for that collateral damage. You know, pasta, I'm doing zucchini noodles now. Instead of tortillas, I'm either doing almond flour tortillas or I'm doing collard wraps, you know, for my tortillas. Or I'll wrap a burrito in seaweed like nori. Instead of bread, which, you know, even a whole grain bread could really spike me, I'll now do something like an almond flour bread or something like that. So just really figuring out these swaps has been very, very helpful to keep my glucose stable. Then fruit is like a whole nother category. So I was eating a lot of naked fruit, basically. So just like a whole apple or a whole peach or something. And I found that sometimes that would just really shoot my glucose up and then cause me to crash right after. So now I pretty much never reach for fruit without fat. I'll typically put tahini or almond butter plus chia seeds or flax on top of the fruit I'm eating. And I tend to favor less ripe fruit now and very like organic, locally grown, more heritage fruit, because that's going to have a lot less fructose than sort of these like massive sugar bomb fruits that you see in the grocery store. So pairing again, being smart about timing, very, very important. And then there's just certain fruits that are never going to work for me. If I eat five grapes, my glucose goes up 50 points. Like it just doesn't work for my body. The interesting thing is that every single person is going to respond to carbohydrates differently. You and I could each eat five grapes and your glucose might not spike at all. And my glucose could go through the roof. And this has been studied quite a bit uh, why this happens. A big factor might be our microbiome composition. If our microbiomes are different, we might actually process carbohydrates differently. So what's good for you might not be good for me. So it's been this really interesting process of experimentation, observations, and then optimization. And now I still eat tons of carbs. I probably eat two to 300 grams of carbs. I would not say tons. Um, I know like Cyrus, he's mentioned he eats like 700 grams of carbs a day. So I, I would say I eat somewhere around like two to 300 grams of carbs a day, but it's all carbs that don't tend to spike my glucose and are paired thoughtfully. So I eat primarily my carbs are beans, legumes, a little bit of starchy stuff like butternut squash, delicata squash, and then some fruit that is low glycemic for me paired with fat. And then I would say I'm eating a lot more fat than I used to, tons of nuts, seeds, nut butters, tahini. And then just like the base of my diet is like 
greens and colorful fruits and veggies. I'm eating 10 to 13 servings a day. My breakfast is all veggies with, you know, basically all my meals look pretty similar, like tons of veggies plus the protein, beans, fat, fiber, and as many antioxidant filled spices that I possibly can. And that keeps my glucose totally flat while still being plant-based and getting all the benefits of a plant-based diet. So it's been working. It's been just transformational for my own life and also for my, um, my athletic pursuits, you know, I run half marathons fairly frequently. I do a lot of outdoor road biking, totally recreationally, not, not even close to your level, but, but now because I've been keeping my glucose low and keeping my insulin low, like we've talked about on this episode, that unlocks the ability to actually burn fat. When glucose is low, your body gets better at burning fat for energy. And so I now basically am able to do most all my workouts fasted. So like I run usually in the morning, having not eaten for eight to 10 hours, I'll do really hard, you know, high intensity interval training without any glucose or or sugar on board uh, because my body is now burning fat for energy and I can check my ketones, which are a product of fat burning after the workout. And I'll see that my ketone levels have gone way up during the workout. And so what that tells me is that my body's adapting. So you basically eliminate this bonking phenomenon for many people. We're seeing this in some of our endurance athletes because your body's not relying on glucose. It's not needing the glucose hit. And if you're eating the glucose all throughout the workout and getting those little insulin spikes, you're basically preventing your body from being able to burn fat during the workout. So it's either on your, you're on the glucose train or you're like on the the fat burning train. And you know, there's a mix of that, but certainly we know that if you're super spiking your glucose with something like a Gatorade, you're probably going to have trouble burning fat during that workout. But there's probably a middle ground that's ideal for a lot of people. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of differences between people, like you mentioned. Like you said, you need two to 300 grams of carbohydrates, whereas Cyrus, who I believe he's a type 1 diabetic, eats 700 grams of carbohydrates. So if you can monitor your glucose, you can understand how food affects you, what your own personalized nutrition program needs to be. And also a word of caution for people who are like, yeah, like low carb, like I want to do fasted workouts. You need to know what you're doing before you actually just start doing it because you could actually cause some major issues in performance and probably beyond that. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting that everybody is really different when it comes to glucose sensitivity, regardless of your fitness level. It's so true. And I think that's such an important point. It's not the type of thing that you want to just jump in and try. It's really about building metabolic flexibility, like being able to kind of go back and forth between burning fat, burning glucose, but that takes time. It's not like the first time you work out without having glucose, you know, like having had a glucose rich meal, it's going to feel great. It's kind of like training your body. These are adaptations that happen over time. And, you know, the body wants to burn different fuel sources when they're available, but it's not something that we can just flip on and off like a light switch. It's very much slow adaptations that should be, you know, taken on very carefully and, and, you know, with monitoring of some sort. So I think that's such a key point for sure. And what if someone listening to this is like, well, you guys are talking about plant-based. I don't want to go plant-based, but I still care about my glucose and my longevity, my health can I do this if I don't want to change my diet? Yeah. So I guess the question is like, can we improve our metabolic health without improving our diet? Yeah. Without going plant-based. Without going plant-based. You know, certainly I'm going to say, yes, there are gains that we can make without going full plant-based. The first thing people can do is eliminate processed refined foods. You know, these Franken foods that are not real foods that are just going to be basically 
like loading the body with refined versions of macronutrients and a bunch of toxins on board as well that are going to be bad for the body. So, you know, any way that we're moving away from process to whole food, I think that's a step in the right direction. Then I would say, you know, we really have to think about cell biology, the cells to produce energy properly. You know, we need the microbiome to be functional. We need digestion to be functional. We need hormones to be functional. We need the mitochondria to be functional. We need the vascular system to be functional. All of this has to actually work properly for us to metabolize well. And in my opinion, that requires having really rich plant foods because Fiber is going to support the microbiome, you know, and a lot of the micronutrients and antioxidants we're going to find in plant foods are going to support the cell biology. So I would just say anything we're doing to move in that direction of loading the body with these like beautiful signaling molecules and substrates is a, is a step in the right direction. And then, you know, as much as we can be avoiding just, you know, the sugars that come in really everything and being more cognizant of labels, it's just incredible how much sugar is in, is in everything. You're going to find it in salad dressings. You're going to find it in ketchup. You're going to find it in every type of drink out there. You're going to find it in yogurts. Like it's in marinades on different foods. Like it's everywhere. So just being starting to be cognizant of that. So, you know, certainly it doesn't have to be all or nothing, but I think anything we can do to kind of move in the direction of giving our body what it needs to thrive on a biologic level and avoiding the things that are going to hurt it, like that's all going to be a pro. Yeah. And I saw something in an article you wrote it was about a market research company. Mintel found that 31% of Americans are practicing meat-free days and 58% are drinking non-dairy milk. So I think that's amazing. And I think it's important to go back to this whole foods-based eating approach, like you mentioned, that if you want to trend towards eating more plant-based, making sure that you're doing it in a healthful way, not just adding in more processed foods, but adding in foods that have nutrient value and nutrient density. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We are just a very, very complex biologic machine and we need that machine to be working properly, which means it, you know, it needs to have these building blocks. And, you know, we get those from whole foods. We don't get those from highly ultra refined processed foods. So we just got to take care of it and take care of the maintenance. And we do that by, by fueling our body with the best fuel possible. And when you do that day after day, week after week, even if it's small increments, you know, um, you're going to see huge, huge changes in your, in your mind, in your body, uh, in your ability to show up in the world and ability to thrive. So I believe that very, very deeply. Can we talk about glucose and how it affects sleep? Have you guys done any research in that area? Yeah, there's a lot of research in this area and it's, it's pretty fascinating and it's actually a bi-directional link. So glucose levels actually can affect our ability to have high quality sleep, but also lack of sleep can have a huge impact on glucose levels. So I don't know if one of those is more interesting than the other two, but happy to talk about either. Let's actually go from the sleep to glucose, because I think a lot of people think, well, I'll just skip an hour of sleep so I can get in my early morning workout and then it'll all even out. Yeah. So I would say don't do that. <laughs> First thing I'll say is everyone does need different amounts of sleep. That's that's for sure. You know, there's no like exact golden amount for each person. But skimping on the sleep that you need your, for your body is a really good way to pull out the rug from, from your underlying metabolic health and ability to perform effectively. So really interesting piece of research. They, they took these two groups of healthy people and they put one group, it was called the short sleeper group, and they made them get 6.5 hours of sleep per night. 
then the regular sleeper group got between 7.5 and 8.5 hours per sleep. So just a one hour difference, like what you were just talking about. And what they found is that the next day they put these people on a glucose challenge where they basically had them drink 75 grams of glucose in a drink form. And then they checked their glucose for two hours after that drink. And they actually, both groups had the exact same glucose response to the drink, but the short sleepers had to produce 50% more insulin to keep their glucose levels at that same amount. So they're producing yeah, 150% as much you know, insulin as the people who got regular sleep. And you can imagine how that's gonna throw your body on this roller coaster. That insulin is coursing through your blood, causing you to have trouble with fat burning, you know, potentially making you keep the fat on and, and it's gonna change the dynamics of the workout and everything. So, so that's a huge, huge amount. And you can imagine day after day, if you're secreting that extra insulin, you're gonna become more insulin resistant and it's gonna lead down this whole process of metabolic dysfunction. They also, there's another really interesting set of young, healthy men, split them into two groups. One group got four hours of sleep a night for six nights. So that's like very little sleep, but you can imagine there's people in college who are probably doing this. And then the other, and they, they did their, you know, blood sugar tests throughout this experiment, six nights of four hours of sleep a night. Then they did six nights where they could get as much sleep as they wanted. And in those six nights of four hours of sleep per night, these healthy men went from totally normal glucose response to pre-diabetic in wow. that period of time. Yeah. And then it, it, you know, it was reversible, but that's crazy. So sleep has a number of like biological effects. One, sleep deprivation makes us more insulin resistant, even in one night of sleep loss. The second is it increases our cortisol levels, which is our stress hormone levels. When our cortisol goes up because we're not getting enough sleep, what that does is it tells our body that we're under threat, we're under stress, it's going to mobilize inflammation, and it's actually going to tell our liver that there's some threat and we need glucose in the bloodstream to fight that threat. So it's going to actually have you dump your stored liver glucose into the bloodstream and raise your glucose just because you got less sleep. The third thing it does is it actually changes our hunger and satiety hormones, ghrelin and leptin, and it's going to make you more hungry the next day. And when these hormones are out of whack, it's going to make you more hungry for carbs. <laughs> so that's the third thing. And the fourth thing is that it directly stimulates inflammation. So we see increased level of inflammatory cytokines, things like TNF-alpha and interleukin-6, CRP, like one day after a night of poor sleep. So for all these reasons, it's just going to basically affect your metabolic health. And while food is one of our primary drivers to improve our metabolic health, I would say you, you can't do it with food alone. I, I don't think you can under, overcome like sleep deprivation. And if you look at huge epidemiologic studies, the sweet spot seems to be between seven and eight hours of sleep. Interestingly, it's what they call a J-shaped curve, meaning that less than seven hours of sleep, increased risk of metabolic dysfunction. But actually over eight hours of sleep, you also see increased risk of metabolic dysfunction. And I think the reason for that is because it's not just about sleep loss or too much sleep. It's about circadian rhythms. It's about regular rhythms of the body hormonally. Like we want our our cortisol and our insulin and our melatonin and all these hormones to kind of have a pattern to them. And when that's out of whack, which can happen with too much sleep too, you can see some issues. So bottom line, seven, eight hours, don't skimp. And um, I, I'm a big fan of sleep trackers for staying accountable for this. Yeah. And also something interesting with sleep is that if you're training really hard, you might need more than eight hours of sleep. Or if you're in a time of lots of stress, you might need more than eight hours of sleep so your body can recover. Is that true also for optimal glucose or is that just for sports performance? To be honest, I don't, I actually am not super familiar with the data of like fluctuating sleep needs 
in response to performance. I certainly know after a tough race or something, I've been able to sleep for like 12 hours straight, you know, and just like, don't want to get out of bed. But, but I don't know about the recovery aspects of that. So that's a really, that's an interesting one. Yeah. That'd be cool to look into that. Yeah. And can we talk about the other direction, how glucose or having more steady glucose can help you sleep better at night? Definitely. This one's really interesting. So when glucose spikes, when you get a big, you know, surge in glucose, it actually can make our bodies heat up a little bit. So it can affect our blood vessels and actually make it difficult to convect heat and make our core body temperature go up just a little bit. But higher body temperature actually is associated with insomnia and not sleeping as well and poor sleep quality, which is why you often hear like you want to be in a cold room when you're sleeping and you want to make sure it's not too hot. That's key. So thermoregulation might be a piece of why a spike at night affects our glucose. The other thing is if we eat, let's say a really high carb meal or a meal, not necessarily high carb, but a meal that happens to spike our glucose late at night, because we're more insulin resistant at night, we're kind of going to see more of an effect from that meal than we would earlier in the day. So let's say you eat a big dessert or like huge bowl of rice right before, and rice doesn't affect everyone, but it does for me. And you get, you know, a really big surge and your insulin, your little insulin is in that time because it's, it's nighttime. You can just imagine you're kind of bouncing around all throughout the night. And that, that up and down can lead to some arousal during the night where you, you know, you're, you're wakeful. And as you kind of go up and down, it can kind of throw you for a loop. So my recommendation for optimal sleep would be to really, you know, think about stopping eating quite a few hours from bedtime. You know, if you go to bed at like nine or 10, thinking about stopping eating around five 30 to six 30 or so giving your time body time to really have that insulin response, come back to normal and really be in a steady state as you're easing into bedtime and to really focus more on the fat and protein rich meals later in the day. I tend to try and, you know, front load more of my carbohydrates and then ease into more of that like ketogenic fat protein later in the evening. So for me, a lot of my evening meals have become things like a big spinach salad with like lots of tofu, avocado, tahini, maybe some vinegar. Vinegar is actually an insulin sensitizer, but basically like I'm, I'm going to be avoiding like the squash or the fruit or the raisins or the, the sweeter honey, you know, dressings with honey in them at night. Cause all of those things are going to kind of keep my glucose. So it's really much more of like a protein fat fiber rich, some beans in there too, sometimes, you know, but really focusing on that in my evening meal to keep glucose steady as I get towards bedtime. Wow. So you've given us so much to think about in today's podcast. And you also talked about um, a company where that you co-founded for continuous glucose monitoring. Where can people find that? And where can people find you? Because we just barely scratched the surface with a lot of these topics. Yeah. So my company is called Levels Health. And we are we are taking this technology, continuous glucose monitoring, and making it mainstream for people. So this has been a technology that's typically been used just in individuals with type 1 or type 2 diabetes as a wonderful treatment tool. And we really just see this potential for unleashing that power of that data stream to so many people for precision nutrition and performance. So that is what our company does is makes this technology accessible for health seeking individuals and then pairs it with software that makes it really interpretable. So you can find us at levelshealth.com and me and a bunch of other guest writers have written a lot about these topics on our blog at levelshealth.com slash blog. Also, a lot of this is put on our Instagram and Twitter at levels. And then for me personally, I write a lot more about like metabolic health and plant-based diets. And I'm at Dr. Casey's Kitchen. So Dr. Casey's Kitchen on Instagram and Twitter. And 
yeah, certainly happy to, you know, field follow-up questions on those platforms. And uh, if anyone's interested, definitely feel free to, to get in touch. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and look forward to learning more. Thanks so much, Sonia. Great to talk with you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you learned a lot about metabolic health. And if you want to take the reins, check out Levels Health, check out Inside Tracker, and also check out 8020 Plants if you want to consider trying a plant-based diet with some one-on-one coaching, meal planning, and nutrition planning as well. And I have a link in the show notes for 8020 Plants. If you click that link, it will also help support the show. I love you guys. My community is everything to me. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.